Welcome back to Hand on the Line Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Boggs. This is episode four. Recording a little later this week, a lot of things came up. But I just spent last weekend at O-Line Masterminds, which is going to be, you know, the blunt of my discussion with this podcast. Freaking awesome weekend, man. Just getting back in that environment, getting back in the O-Line world, uh, being surrounded by these players and coaches and scouts and media. It was just awesome. I just feel revived. I'm just pumped up. My mind is spinning. My mind's racing. I'm going down all kinds of rabbit holes. I'm, you know, the format they had there was Duke would ask questions. He would pass the mic around. So I'm looking at, you know, players' film. I'm looking, you know, studying Teron Armstead and Mitch Schwartz. You know, players I look up to just because their game is solid. But now, like, being able to watch the film and see kind of their process and how they perceive things and how they uh, problem-solved on the field. So, I mean... Man, I'm just I'm just feeling pumped up about O line right now, and I needed that. That was it was an awesome event. It was freaking awesome. I saw well, Olin Cruz was there, so I got to hang out with him, the legend. Uh, a couple uh, friends I've developed in this O line community that uh, are entrepreneurs and high school coaches slash teachers in Southern California, and there was like ten Humboldt State alum, you know, because that's how Duke and I know each other from Humboldt State. So. All these Humboldt alum were there, guys I played with, guys that I played with and was coached by, guys that were there previously to me, um, all O-line. It was awesome, you know, and at Humboldt, you just kind of have this connection because you automatically hate that freaking place and love it at the same time, you know, because these assholes drop football, but that's another podcast I could go on. I could be like a whole series, actually, but never, we'll wait, we'll wait for that one, but um, so you know, you're seeing different generations of Humboldt State O-linemen that were, you know, basically connected because of uh, our strength coach that everyone loves, Drew Peterson, the greatest strength coach of all time, and his son, who I inherited as like a, I guess as like a stepbrother, that's how I would explain it, like the way that uh, the movie Step Brothers, that's how I would explain our relationship, but he, he got to go, Bryce Peterson, he's the starting center at Akron, just a, a bad, bad dude. Plays, plays O-line the way I like to see it played. Um, just just an awesome weekend, man. I, I just feel pumped up. I feel just revived, revitalized. Awesome. Great time. Um, I, I'm going to address something with, in regard to me attending this Masterminds because I know I've joked in previous episodes about me getting questions. I've gotten – previously I had two questions – that were supposed to be answered on the podcast. I actually got a little bit more, and I got a little bit of feedback on the podcast at Online Masterminds. Pretty interesting. Um, but I did have a lot of text messages and DMs about why I would attend Online Masterminds. And uh, I'll just break that down. I'm not part of any team, any camp, any brand, uh, any gang, none of this. I, I represent my freaking self. And my... You know, my journey and my evolution within this O-line and football world has always been the same. I'm a freaking student of the game. I don't want to exist in an echo chamber. I don't want to be an expert. I despise experts because they freaking think they know everything. You can always learn. Anyone you meet, there's something you can learn from. And if you're going to go in this O-line world, of course there's something I can learn from. I don't care if I'm, you know, uh, a Hall of Famer in, in the NFL I can learn from a pro bowler. I can learn from a perennial starter. I can learn from a backup. Uh, well, that's that's crazy. But, I mean, me as a – I can learn from college guys. I can learn from high school coaches. It's not crazy. I always keep learning. 
not an expert. Experts know everything or think they do. I despise that. So, but like I said, I'm not part of any camp. No one has said anything to me. There's no problems. No one has said a freaking word to me outside of these DMs and text messages I get. There's no freaking problem. Trust me. No one has said a word. So I went to O-Line Masterminds because I, that's who I am. I'm always trying to learn, trying to develop, trying to get more information so I can pass it on and help people. And I just kind of crave the knowledge. And furthermore, Duke and I have known each other for 15 years. For um, When he was at Humboldt State his senior year, I didn't make the team. I was the team cameraman. So I would film the practices with that big camera that had the full-size VHS in it, film the games. But after his senior year, for whatever reason, he took me under his wing. I was in the redshirt program, and Duke would do drills with me afterwards. He would put me through workouts. He, would, he was always helping me, help giving me film to watch. He gave me um, VHSs of the Minnesota Vikings and uh, New York Giants practice drills so I could do these things. So he was always helping me. After my, you know, or during my senior, he was coaching at a JUCO up there, College of the Redwoods. I think they have football still, uh, which is embarrassing for Humboldt State. But um, he was coaching there. So after he got off work, he would come watch my practice film with me or my game film with me. We would go over stuff. He And then he would send my game film out to, like, CBS Sports. And he got an article written about me, Diamond in the Rough. That guy always helped me. He always took me under his wing. And, that, like, just because we were boys. And I went to his house every weekend in the summer, my senior year, to barbecue. No sauce required. This dude is a monster on the grill. So that's that. I represent myself. I'm not part of the, any, anyone's anything. I, I'm just trying to learn. The more I can learn, the better. And, if, and I'm not arrogant enough to think that I can skip something like O-Line Masterminds. It's loaded with all pros, future Hall of Famers, Polynesian Hall of Famers, because there was two. Polynesian Hall of Famers there. Um, I think I can't learn something. That's just ridiculous. So I went down there to learn, and that, in fact, I did. And I feel great about it. So that's that. Um, let me get into So I, I, I'll narrow some things down, my favorite things that I picked up. So when you got to understand, when you have there, – there's like coaches talk, and there's nothing – I don't have any problem with coaches talk – the way players that um, break things down and talk about skills and stuff, it's it's different. You know, it might not um, it might not serve the mass as well on a podcast, but uh, it's very digestible. And you know, it's something you would sit around drinking beers to. You know, but that's kind of like how old line masterminds felt to me when the players talked or spoke. And you have to realize that not all good players know why they're good. So. The ones that maybe don't know why they're good, they, they kind of present uh, more coaching talk because they're just almost regurgitating the cues that were given to them, which that's perfectly fine because if they get on the field, they're able to use those cues and be great players. But there was some guys that stood out to me when you're like, holy smokes, these guys, they're just sharp. So for starters, Teron Armstead, left tackle for the Saints, who, you know, one of my closest friends, Larry Warford, held in the highest regard. And Patrick Omame was another guy that played with him. They talked about how smart he was. It's not something you kind of hear with the tackle position because they got these monsters to worry about on the end. They just kind of tell me who to block. Um, I, although I've come across, you know, some smarter tackles, Jermon Bushrod and um, 
uh, Charles Leno. Just they're s- super smart. But you, Teron Armstead, this guy is, you know, he's an all pro, pro bowler. He's been paid and he's a freak of nature. I think he runs like a 4 7. I think he's went to Pine, uh, Arkansas Pine Bluff or something like that. But the dude's a freak, but that guy's a genius, man. He knows exactly why he's doing things. He was breaking down clips of, you know, games that he played with a hurt ankle. And I remember, I know for a fact, like, they were showing clips of him hurt when he played San Fran because uh, the week before, my boy Pat Omame started for him at left tackle, and I was really hoping he got to play the 49ers because the Bosa brother was there. And I was like, oh, if he shuts the Bosa brother down. Oh, my bad, I hit a wire. If he shuts the Bosa brother down, he's going to get paid. But Armstead played, and he was hurt, and he was showing how he adapted to the game with the injury. He had to lay off of his left ankle. He played more inside out than normal. He was even more heavy inside hand than normal. But, like, the guy just gets it. He knows how to make decisions. He knows how to adapt. You know, his perception and his the reality of what's taking place are just, you know, neck and neck. So it was awesome to hear him speak. And, you know, and, and that's not necessarily the position I care about. I like to hear about first and foremost centers. And then I want to hear the guards. But uh, the, the tackles, they blew my mind, you know, and I picked up a lot of good stuff, and even with carryover. And then the other person that really stood out, and the, re- and the better, the, you know, the, the best part about him is that he's not a great athlete, but he's all pro, and he's one of the best right tackles in the league for a lot of years was Mitch Schwartz. You can tell why he's so good. You know what I mean? Like, if you look at him, okay, he's not the most impressive physique. He's not the most impressive. I bet you his combine's not really impressive. I've worked out with him. Like, I didn't think he was extremely strong. I've watched him shut down uh, the ends for years. When you heard him speak, uh, yeah, it's very clear why Mitch Schwartz was a special player. So I got a lot of notes from those two. Um, Let's see. You know, just because I can't break things down in a video, I'll just pick some of, like, the more digestible things that could go over the podcast. So, for for starters, Mitch Schwartz, he had an awesome point of how he prepares for film. So, Duke would say, hey, guys, talk to me about some of the ways you watch, broke down film and how you prep for things. And then he would just call on guys. You know, he'd call on, like, uh, Olin Cruz or Jesse Polo uh, and just kind of pass it around. Lane Johnson – Teron Armstead, all, all these all pros and pro bowlers and, you know, uh, future Hall of Famers. I, I believe Olin's a Hall of Famer. Uh, he's a Polynesian Hall of Famer. Um, so he, he gave it to Mitch. And Mitch, the, what he said, I mean, it's so simple, but he was literally collecting data when he watched film. And I get it. I'll get into this part before I tell you what Mitch said. When people say break down film, I believe it's important, and I'm speaking specifically for me. I needed to watch a lot of film. I tried to not make the film so important. It messed with my head. I had to watch a lot of film. I had to watch, first and foremost, the guys I was lining up against, and when I was a swing guy, I'm you know that, that could be you know the DNs and the nose guard, um, uh, and I needed to watch the defense. I needed to see base. I need you know because if I was going to play center. I, you know, I need to see base. I need to see sub. I need to see third down. I need to see two minute. I want to see backed up. I want to see uh, four minute. I want to see goal line. It is what it is. It, that's what worked for me. And I know for some guys, it's overwhelming or they don't need it. Some guys just tell them to hit someone and, uh, you know, see player, hit player, call it a day. And I don't think anything's wrong with that either. 
maybe for centers, I'm like, you, you, you got to be well in tune to film. But I hear this argument all the time, and I don't believe, you know, like I always say, it's nuanced. Like, how much film should you watch? It's the, the one you feel comfortable. If you're going to have, like, FOMO or you're going to be afraid that you didn't break enough down, then then you need to watch some damn film. You know, don't, don't try to be cool because one guy says, I don't even watch any film, and I just shut everyone down. That can be true, but that, that's not you. So just be honest with yourself. And if you're someone that makes a ton of mistakes or you're playing slow or you don't know what's really going on, then you probably need to watch film. You know, just be honest with yourself. So, but Mitch Schwartz, he was collecting data when he watched film. So he would, you know, lay out their five rushes, like, Let's just keep it simple. Uh, they would do an outside swim, cross chop, uh, let's say outside spin, a long arm, and uh, speed to power. Whatever. Okay. So he would watch the film and tally those things up. So he would make, you know, like, you know, strike lines on them. And then he would watch defenders on both sides because and this is something I really hadn't thought of. Like, I know, I like me, I like to play right guard, uh, but I've had to go in and play left guard. I know defenders have a side they like, you know, even, uh, um, I was, I remember talking to Calais Campbell. He liked one side. He's a perennial pro bowler. He liked playing one side more than the other. But what Mitch said, he would find, you know, Hey, somebody's racing hot rods outside the studio. My bad. But so what Mitch said, he would find, you know, oh, a guy can do a spin outside when he was on the left tackle, but he couldn't spin outside on the right tackle. He could only spin inside. So, like, okay, well, the guy was like Zoolander. He, he, he can't turn left, whatever. So he would find things like that. Um, I guess I kind of knew that was a thing, but not. I never broke it down like that. So that was awesome. But just, just the fact that he was able to, the, the way he broke down the film was, like, tallying up their rushes. And then you could kind of categorize them. Well, this is his third down. This is his first down rush. This is his two-minute. So he would have, like, a great idea going into the game what he was going to see. So he would able to be able to adapt and adjust prior or even tell his, def- like his scout team to give him certain looks because he knew what he was going to get, which that's nothing new. But the idea of just, you know, breaking it down like data. And I do think um, – if you just look at the landscape of this game, like the way these D linemen are approaching it, and I watch, I try to follow all the D linemen, uh, and I love when they break their moves down, and um, I love like what's the, the Chuck Smith and all the pass the pass rush guys. I love how they approach it. They approach it way different than us. They're just looking for that clutter, as I talked about, and you know, offensive line tend to be more robotic, but so you do got to you have to adjust to what's out there i know there's freaks that i'm sure larry allen he or walter jones these guys could do whatever they want but someone like mitch you know he's adjusting his set and he's taking uh you know he had um had this thing he had an awesome thread on twitter but he talked he calls it the hamilton there was a d lineman that used to long arm people uh maybe that's what he calls that's why he calls it but basically how he stopped the long arm so he would practice all week someone's giving him a long arm and he would basically just lift the arm up. So say their inside arm was stabbing his inside peck, he would time it up really well. So before he ended up getting bull rushed by that long arm, he would just lift it off of his chest and he would land it. And when somebody has film showing it, then it's real. A lot of times in the O-line world, we hear concepts. I've heard somebody say he 
cross-collar choked, which is a jiu-jitsu move when you wear a gi, you cross-collar choke someone. I've heard someone claim that he uh, cross-collar choked the defender and put him to sleep. No film, though. He didn't have the film. And this is an NFL player. I'm like, okay, cool. But with uh, Mitch, he called it the Hamilton, how he would land to get the long arm off of him. And it was specifically versus uh, Mac because they played in the same division um, when Mac was in Oakland and, and Mitch was in KC. And he's landing it. So it's real. It's just not some fake concept or sounds good. No, no, no. He, this is backed up. This is, there's evidence that, this, that the Hamilton works. So check that out. Just type in Mitch Schwartz Hamilton on Twitter. It was awesome. So that would be my first thing is the tally marks for the rushes and preparing for the rushes. Another thing was uh, actually a side conversation with Mitch Schwartz, and I was just telling him, I was like, I walked over, and I knew him. I, I think I trained with him his rookie year. If I might have came in the year before him, but I think he was a, right after his rookie year. He balled out in Cleveland his rookie year, and that was, O-line was freaking nasty. You know, like Alex Mack, Sean LaValle, the great Joe Thomas, Mitch Schwartz, I think Greco. It was an awesome O-line in Cleveland. So I kind of, you know, I kind of have a history of Mitch. So I start talking to him, and he brings up, and I, and I was just saying, you know, talking about his set. You know, he set very vertical in um, KC. When he was like, well, uh, now my dog is in the studio shaking. Uh, sorry about that. So he would say in KC, you know, they told him he had to set very vertical. And so he, he was talking about when you're setting vertical as a tackle, you, you have to stay square, or you can stay square. And, and then let's be honest, like vertical, you got to put an asterisk as vertical as can be. So he would say he, he would stay square as possible. But he said it at a, when you're setting an angle, and he just said 45, but just the way I look at it with angles and O-line play, they're big angles. It's a big 45-degree angle because no one's bringing out a protractor. No one's measuring the actual angle. So he, he said when he set at an angle, once he was kind of getting to a spot, he would slightly turn. Which was like, okay, I'd always force this idea. You got to be square as possible. You got to be square as possible. But he would slightly turn, and by slightly turning, it would allow him to not get edged. It would prevent him from getting edged because if he turned, if he stayed square on the angle to the defender, he had to reach his hand out to block him. So he had to take his hand outside of his frame. My coach's point is stay behind your hands, right? So if I believe that, then. I would believe that I wouldn't believe in turning, right? If, I, if I'm telling offensive line athletes, stay behind your hands, then and I'm saying, oh, stay square, well, then I'm, you know, it doesn't fit. It doesn't match. That's, that's a false claim. So I'm glad I talked to Mitch because in order for him to stay behind his hands when he sat on the angle, he had to turn slightly a tackle. And it was a slight turn, but it was just enough so he didn't reach outside his body and when you reach outside your body, you know, reach outside with your outside hand at tackle, you'll get edged. So he, he actually brought in my mind. So then I just started watching, um, you know, some of the better guards in the NFL. I always kind of watch Larry Warford. I know he's uh, not playing, but I have a bias towards him. But I just love the way he moves. And then I was watching uh, Brandon Brooks because he was speaking there. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? When they're on these, uh, setting these four eyes, they do slightly turn. And I know you want to stay square as possible. So it's, you know, it's kind of like this paradox we live in. We want to stay square as possible. And I believe you want to stay behind your hands. You want your feet to take you, you know, whatever coaching point you use. That's what I say. You know, 
stay behind your hands. Some people, you know, will say, let your feet take you there. I think Olin says your feet take you, your hands there first. Whatever you want to say, we're all saying the same thing. But in order to do that, you got to be realistic with how square you're staying. So there's a slight turn. I'm not saying bail. It's a slight turn. So don't don't get uh, excited, guys, that, you know, just turn out the gate because that is wrong. Like Mitch said, he starts out square and turns basically – when he gets to his spot, it's not the words he used, but that's how, you know, I interpret it, and that's the language I use is more getting to your spot. He slightly turns. And then when I watched Larry and Brandon Brooks setting four eyes, oh, and Zach Martin, which I know this is not fair to watch these guys that are that good, slightly turn. The other guy I reference a lot is Alex Kappa. Not just because he went to Humble State. I hate Humble State, but because he freaking does stuff right. So, same thing when they get a little wider. He's getting a slight turn, which that's what keeps you behind your hands. That's what allows your feet to take you there, to take your hands to where you're trying to get them. So uh, that was awesome. And then I'm, I'm going to say my another awesome coaching point, which I don't think he was. This is the cool thing about um, O-line masterminds is Duke is passing this mic around. He's got little, literally runners passing mics around as he's asking questions. So there's no, like, pauses. There was, like, two guys – running, you know, handing the mic off. So it was just rapid fire of responses. So he asked Olin Krutz. Olin had no idea he was going to talk. So he said at center, which that's what I like to hear about, is how he was stopping defenders. So Ryan Jensen was there. That's a bigger dude. Olin was never that big, right? So they had two different philosophies at center. And, you know, Ryan is more like a, the size of a guard, which there was Andre Garod was there. He played, he made five Pro Bowls for the Cowboys in the 2000s. Really good player, but he was about like the size of a guard also. Olin was like that old school center. So he didn't set as deep as Ryan Jensen. He said he always kept his, he never reached, his feet took him where he was, and he kept basically like his shoulder in a straight line. He never wanted like his hands to come across his body or outside his body. And he always threw his hands. But so let's say he's setting right. This is terrible to explain on a freaking podcast that you're listening to. Um, but so let's say he's setting right at center. His off hands, his left hand, he's setting that, let's say, to get that left pack, right? His feet is taking him there first. He's not reaching. So he's staying pretty square. His right hand is coming up under. The snap hand is coming under. But the way he looked, the way he conceptualized that he was winning the block is by keeping his hips strong. So he shut down without getting, like his whole thing was not getting bent back, not getting pushed back, so keeping the right hip strong. So, I mean, and a lot of these things I know, you know, like I know that, okay, yeah, uh, keep the hip strong or get the don't reach across your body. But just hearing him say it and hearing the cues he used for himself, uh, I love. So he's not winning just with his hands. His feet are taking him there first. He's not reaching across his body. But once he gets his hand, you know, his right hand on the defender, it's that right hip that's stopping him on the line of scrimmage. And when you watch Olin, um, those, I mean, those nose guards in the 2000s, in the early 2000s, were just enormous. Um I'm trying to think. They're like Hicks. You know what I mean? Like Akeem Hicks. That's what you would be. That's the kind of player uh, that he was seeing week in and week out. You know, just big dudes. Like 
like like even like Luther Ellis and stuff like that. But he kept the guys on the line of scrimmage, and I got to tell you, like you're not keeping these 350 plus pounders on the line of scrimmage just because you got their hands on them quick. That contributes, but it makes all the sense in the world that he wasn't getting dented because he kept that strong hip. And then he, if he did get dented, he had an answer for everything. You know, he would swipe their hands or whatever, chop their hands down. But that made a lot of sense the way he played the game and the way he, what he, what he perceived he needed to do to win. So I'm glad I heard that. But you know, overall, just that format was awesome. Um, I feel like you get you get guys like Brandon Brooks and Lane Johnson. That, that Super Bowl run, this is the best line in the NFL. Uh, Brandon Brooks in nineteen is the best guard in the NFL. I know, um, I know Nelson gets a lot of praise and rightfully freaking so because he's a monster. But um, I th- in nineteen, my guards were uh, Richie Incognito. I remember watching him in Chicago versus that London game. His old ass was just killing everybody. And Brandon Brooks, like, I don't remember him giving up a pressure in 2019. So, you know, they would ask them questions. Uh, Duke would ask Lane and Brandon Brooks questions. And you, for them, you would get more like, uh, almost more like coaching talk because they don't necessarily, and I'm not taking, this is not a shot. They don't necessarily know why they're so great. You're like it wasn't it, hearing them talk wasn't the same as hearing uh, uh, Mitch talk, Mitch Schwartz talk. But I mean, these guys are total pros. Like both of these guys are three hundred pounders with six packs, eating healthy diets, and crazy work ethic. You know, so. Um, but I did. I got some things from, you know, Brandon Brooks. Like he, in regard to like his thought with the jump set, it's hard to explain on podcasts. But so I'll, you know. I'll stay away from that right now, but uh, that guy looks like a monster, though. Holy crap. I saw him back, I don't I think we played Houston back in the day. He had to be like 360. This dude's like 330 with abs now. He does like martial arts stuff. I can't wait to see how he plays this year. Him and Lane. Lane's happy again, or uh, happy. I'm sure he's happy, but he's healthy. Uh, Looking forward to that. Actually, looking forward to see all these guys play now that I kind of have an understanding of what they do. Um, let me think here. Some of the, the – the, there was some stuff um, that Jensen was talking about at center that he he would kind of bring – this is terrible to explain in the podcast. My apologize. I apologize. I'll have some better content next week, but I'm just really excited about this O-line masterminds. But anyways – uh, he would come around really high with his outside hand, and I had to go back and watch the film, and he does it. And I was like, when he was explaining it, and I'm, again, yeah, when someone's explaining something, a lot of times I'm envisioning myself doing it. Can I do it? And I'd be like, okay, remember, I'm a 285-pound center when I played. And I'm like, no, I would get smashed doing that. And then Olin even said he would struggle doing that. But uh, I went back and watched the clip, so he would come really wide with his outside hand, so his right hand, and, like, punch over the top. And, you know, for me, I'd be like, oh, I, I don't want to give him that space, you know, lifting my arm over. But I watched him passing off some overload fronts with him and Kappa and him and Ollie Marpet and him keeping guys on the line. And the, 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 the point is, is that hearing how these pros figure things out is uh, it's it, it, you're seeing them not as robots. You know what I mean? Like. Jensen's doing something that I would never consider doing, right? 
And not and Jensen's not a freak athlete. He's a brawler, right? But it's not like Walter Jones jump setting on third and long. Like, okay, that's one, he's really good, but he was a freak. Like Jensen is more like just a blue collar guy. But he's explaining something that I would never consider doing and it works. And I went back and watched the film and it, it, it does. It's very effective. Like he's shutting guys down. Uh he's lights out and pass pro. He's passing off uh overload fronts in that division in Tampa. I think what's that the NFC South? I don't know. Shoot. But he's passing off games. And the point is is like this whole you I'm when you when at the O line masterminds, you got to look at them as individuals. And the, with this position, it's dogmatic, yes, but it's you know we kind of think of like this whole robotic approach. And I just love to see styles, and that's what we're ultimately getting there is with these pros, you know, and some of them the best in the game, some of them the highest paid in the game. We're learning their styles, so that'd be my my criticism of O line masterminds is like we're learning the best of the best styles. Which for me, I that that's it doesn't get any better. You know what I mean? It's like why I have my favorite boxer styles. Why I like you know the matchups in MMA. You know the wrestler versus the Muay Thai guy or the Jiu Jitsu guy. I love the styles, right? And that's my criticism. That'd be my one criticism. And this is not saying anything's wrong with it. This is the perfect format for what's going on for or for for their target audience. Styles takes time to develop. It takes years, you know what I mean? It takes getting beat. It takes getting hit in the mouth. It takes getting your hand swiped. It takes getting bull rushed. It takes failure. Tons and tons of failure helps develop style. So that's what we're getting, right? And guys just figuring it out, guys adapting, making decisions, and things they stick with. That's not for high school kids, right? It's not for high school kids. If I go say, hey, you could take your hand over the top like Ryan Jensen, or you can, uh, if someone long arms you in high school, I want you to do this Hamilton. It's not, they're not ready for that, right? For, for high school, you've you, you got to develop the principles. And I've, I've gone back and forth on this over the years, and I work with some uh, high school guys now. Um, over the last couple of years, and even during the pandemic, you know, we, a couple of guys I rolled with and did Muay Thai with, they would train me, you know, like black belts, and I would work with their kids, you know what I mean? So kind of like that trade of the uh, skills. So I've gone back and forth on really developing offensive line, young offensive line athletes, and they're not ready for the styles. You've got to teach them principles. That just starts with how to move and uh, then go out there and fail. And, and that is what it is. It's kind of like the idea of shadow boxing with never getting hit in the face. I don't know. I don't want to overemphasize it. Give them the principles of movement. You could call it drive catch, whatever you could call it. Push absorb. I don't care what you call it. I, I, I think what Charles is right. You drive and your catch. That is the correct um, terminology as well as I think I'll, we'll ever hear it for taking pass sets. But I don't want to, oh, like, I'm not searching when I'm working with young guys. I'm not searching for perfect pass sets. I'm not tell, talking to them about style. It's like, hey, how to get from, you know, your stance. We'll talk stance. Obviously, that's my most important. We'll start there. But how to get from your stance to cover up this defender being inside out. And 
let you fail from there, okay? All right, well, first, I'll give you an example. First rep, they get caught in the chest. Well, then they go, you, you take a high school guy, takes a set, doesn't do anything with his hands, but he moves well. He's getting the principles of movements, gets bull rushed. And then, okay, like, what do I do? You go, oh, well, you got to hop, hop, and you got to swipe his hands down, and you got to do all these style factors. No, no, no. Okay, you keep it simple. Hey, you got hit in the chest. What do you think you should do? Oh, I probably hit them back. Okay, yeah. So you take your set and you throw your hands. You don't get into like, oh, I want you to throw this left hand under and come over the top of the right hand. That's developed. You know, these are like style factors you develop over time. And, you know, like this has been one of my arguments, and I don't mean to freaking ramble. Yes, I do freaking mean to ramble. That's what I do. I've seen, you know, NFL coaches coach something a certain way, and maybe one of their O-linemen does it, right? Um, the other four, they don't. But one O-lineman does it. And then they've gone to another team where one O-lineman naturally does it, and they go, oh, he does the perfect technique. Well, no, he has a style that kind of matched someone else's style that you kind of gravitated to, towards and started teaching. So with the high school kids, that you know, this past weekend, is not for them. But if you're a high school coach, the big key you take away from this, because it's it wasn't it's not your clinic where you're drawing power, it's not your clinic where you're drawing up um uh duo a hundred times and it's not that kind of clinic, right? It's not um like the offensive line performance clinic where they're just talking how to move efficiently. It's not that type of clinic. So but as a high school coach, if you were there, what you see is how these guys individually problem solve. You don't have a room full of robots. You have a room full of individuals with some principles that they have. To, the art needs to adapt to them. It's like in jiu-jitsu. Um, I'm six foot six, so my guards are not going to look the same as the 170-pound uh, five-foot-ten guys, you know, I have to adapt the art to me because my limbs are longer. What is if I go against a shorter guy? Uh, I can't. There's certain guards you can't do. So you adapt the art to you, and that's that's what you would get from O line masterminds. Is like okay, the art of O line play. You adapt it to the individual. It's not the in. It's you don't come up with a set of rigid principles and be like they have to adapt to this. And that's I mean, and people do that, and then some of them find success, but. Uh, if you sat there and you listened, you, you heard, you know, and I, I don't know how many guys had the mic, but uh, I don't know, 20, 30 guys with the mic did things differently, you know, and some, and some guys just had, you know, like a, like a Howard Mudd, uh, coaching talk, you know, and then I think, you know, I had Aaron Cromer, Aaron Cromer didn't do a lot of coaching talk, you know, he, he, like he, he would even specifically say things to me, he'd be like, oh, just go do some SEAL shit. And because I think he was talking about um, he met some Navy SEALs and they had an important mission and it, nothing went according to plan and they the plan, everything went successful though. So nothing went according to plan and everything was completely executed. And he was like, well, how did you do that? And the SEALs told him, we just did some SEAL shit. So he would tell me that all the time. Like, dude, you're 280. You're not even supposed to make this team. Uh, go do some SEAL shit. And he, so he, he was very adaptable like that. And I remember like Teron Armstead was talking about a coaching point 
that he learned from somebody because Cromer used to be with the Saints, so Teron got there after him, but he learned it from somebody on the Saints, you know, maybe the right tackle or someone else to play there. So then they actually kind of got to collaborate up on the stage on these mo- on the you know the technique they were talking about. But that's what you would get as a you know a high school guy telling, oh, do what Teron or or Mitch does or what uh, Jensen does or Olin does. I feel like you could mess them up. You keep you stick to the basics. The high school guys, you got to stick to stance. Um, you stick to movement, and you got to let them know failure is okay. Because failure is where the growth comes. Failure is where style comes from. And, and I, I fully believe that. You know, uh, you're going to have guys that throw their hands. You know, you hear the term, you got heavy hands. You're going to have guys that throw heavy hands, and you're going to have guys that chop hands down. Um, but that, that's the style. And that's that's happened. That You develop that style just basically through failure. And that's how I always see it. But the O line coach for the high school, what they would get out of that is again, you don't have, you you don't have uh, robots. Look at all these individuals and the things they do great. So as your guys fail and start adapting to the failures that they go through in high school, you, you know, let them develop their style. You know what I mean? Don't make these robots because you don't know you don't know how great they could be. You know what I mean? You don't know what works for them, and it's only going to help you coach. Uh, people in the future, you know, you'll start getting kind of similar style, similar body types, and how do they adapt? It's only going to help you. So that's what the um, high school coach will get there. And then even when I look at the college guys, I think um, like Bryce Peterson I talked about from Akron, my, my strength coach's son, he, we're, we're, past, we're past just the basics, right? Like this guy grew up in the O-line, uh, O-line room at Humboldt State. This guy got to train with Charles Bentley before he was in high school, you know, so he's worked with NFL players forever. He's passed, like, just the basics of uh, movement and failure. Like, okay, so he's he's on for style. You, you know, he, He's developed his style, and we're adapting from there. I'll, I'll actually bring up a conversation we had in a minute. But some of these younger college guys, I still think you got to stick to the basics and just let them kind of develop as they go. That's what – that's what practice and one on ones and stuff is for. It's got to be for development. The problem is that a lot of times practice and one on ones is looked at looked at as competition and graded as such. Well, I get it. In college, like you got to get the best guys on the field. But if you have it in your heart, you have it in the numbers, you have the time. That's that's the development of style. That's where you're going to find out how good someone could actually be is when you let them adapt to the losses that they go through. And, you know, when I was just looking around there, and I know a lot of these guys' stories because I'm, a, I'm like, a, I'm an I'm a O-line fan. I was like the worst player because I'm like a true fan, right? So I know a lot of these guys, they didn't start their first year. You know, um, Olin Cruz didn't start his rookie year. Uh, I don't think Jensen started his rookie year. I know Andre Garreau didn't start his rookie year. But these guys figured some stuff out and became, you know, really good players. So if they didn't start their rookie year, I mean, so I'll say this. Casey Wigman, he started over Olin his rookie year. Casey Wigman was a badass center. I think he played 14 or 15 years, but he made one Pro Bowl. He wasn't better than Olin Krutz when it was all said and done. He was better than Olin that year. In 98, he was better than Olin Krutz, right? He didn't. 
he, he didn't finish off better than Owen, although he had an amazing career. You don't play 15 years and make a Pro Bowl. I feel like he made his Pro Bowl in 08. I want to say 96 was his rookie year, 94. So, I mean, you don't make a Pro Bowl that late if you're not just a special player. But when it's all said and done, he's no Olin Krutz. So in that year that Olin couldn't beat out Casey Wigman, he started developing a style. He started developing, you know, a, a pro game. So I just say that to say, um, and, and you got to remember that's like, that might not happen for an undrafted guy, but if you got a college red shirt, you got to let the failure be part of the development. Don't beat them down. Because when you beat them down, Remember I talked about the cybernetics and the positive and negative feedback loops. You beat them down, you got the robot you're looking for. You'll never be happy with that robot. And it'll be hard for you to admit that you were uh, a factor in creating that robot, if that makes sense. So that was the big thing. Like you're seeing a bunch of individuals uh, be developed or individual styles. So I guess that's the that was, I don't play in any of these podcasts. I just said I was going to talk about Oli Masterminds. I turn the camera on. I start freaking rambling. You know, put the kids down to sleep, drink 16 ounces of water with a, uh, that liquid IV in it. So I guess today's topic is individual style. Maybe I should plan this shit out, stuff out. I apologize. So that was all cool, man. And then they had a wings contest I didn't partake in. Um, I got a bunch of cool free gear. I got finally size 15 Crocs. I never had Crocs in my size. I always thought people looked stupid in them, and I haven't taken them off around the house since I got them. So I apologize for that. See that that's just being uh keeping an open mind. You know what I mean? Always learning, always developing. My feet feel great. My heels feel good in the morning, right? So I got Crocs now. Got some cool gear. I messed up. I didn't grab the bag with the coffee cup. But, you know, I didn't know it was coming when I got back to stupid humble state. Uh, and I'm sure the athletic director meant the best, but he sent us a bunch of coffee cups, you know, to people that have previously donated. They should put that damn money in an account that has compound interest and get this freaking program back. I don't even want to drink out of this cup. My wife does, but, I mean, she settled for me, so I'm not freaking surprised. Uh, whatever though but yeah so we got some gear um they had the wing stop truck there i've never had wing stop i know rick ross and lemon pepper my wings and all that never had wing stop i drive by them not interested um but i had the wings but they didn't do wings they did chicken thighs and they were tremendous and i got lemon pepper because i was influenced by that that verse in the song lemon pepper my wings even though he had some controversial lyrics and that's some bars in that same verse. Um, but that was awesome. Uh, just ch- just sitting around. Oh, I left one out. I've met Bing freaking Grubs. I'm 290 pounds right now. This guy's 240. Um, when I played and I would watch him and I was trying to mimic his jump set from New Orleans and Coach Cromer in Chicago would have us watch Bing Grubs and Jari Evans over and over. He was like 310. So, and I was like 280. Now I'm bigger than him. Uh, I got to talk to him like, dude, I was like, man, you don't know how much film of yours I watched. It was it was awesome. Super humble guy. Um, a lot of just just he's super intelligent, too, which is crazy because I just remember seeing like this animal getting out on screens, messing people up. Awesome jump set, super athletic. 
He's super, uh, he, dude is just sharp, man. He's getting his master's in exercise science. He's training guys. Just impressive overall, like, transition. He had a neck injury. Just hearing him talk, like, this guy, this guy, he gets the exercise science. He's training guys. Awesome. So that was awesome to meet uh, Ben Grubbs after, you know, watching so much of his film over the uh, last several, you know, I guess, man, pretty much that was like one of the main guard guys I was trying to mimic when I was learning jump set. Uh, so that was awesome, man. So I got to meet Ben Grubbs. He answered some questions on the mic. Uh, and then, man, I, as happy as I've been in the last few months, you know, was uh, just sitting there with the Humboldt State guys just telling old Humboldt State stories. That place is freaking wild, man. It is, uh, it's in the middle of the Redwood Forest. It's full of hippies. Uh, 420 is the biggest holiday there you could ever imagine. It's all weirdos. Just blue hair everywhere. Uh, rainbows. Very just diverse uh, progressive population uh, with a bunch of meathead football players from the inner cities of L.A., the inner cities of the Bay Area, the inner cities of San Diego, and then all these country people in between. It, it was awesome. So just sharing stories, that was a freaking great time. And I'm going to start wrapping this up because I'm going to talk about these UFC fights because I don't know if this is a pandemic thing that happened because I noticed that UFC has a ton of fans now because it was the only sport that figured it out during the pandemic. Well, I mean, initially when most things were canceled. So, but O-Line, they're like big into this thing, right? They are fans. And go figure most of them are fans of Conor McGregor. And I think you kind of, well, I'll say this. When you see like kind of like these crazy intense guys tatted up, they're Conor McGregor fans. You get like a wrestler from the Midwest. They were going for Poirier. That's how I saw it. It was interesting. But so we went to a bar uh, after all the, the two after the two days of events were finished and um I sat with Duke and then you know I don't know there's probably 40 NFL guys in there college and NFL guys at this bar watching the fights and man uh I'll start with the McGregor thing I, I'm a fan of him I think he's, I'm a fan of Poirier I think he, like he's like the O-line of I think Olin even said he's like the old lineman of the UFC. He's kind of boring interviews. How do you not root for him? He just keeps working, keeps getting better. He, you know, he can fight five rounds, doesn't get tired. But, like, deep down, and I just got to be honest with myself, I'm rooting for Conor McGregor. I like, I love the psycho, always walking on ledges, you know what I mean? There's something about that, you know. It's like uh, I'm, I grew up with a Sicilian family. Not that that means anything, but they, they watch all these those mob movies, and you always like kind of appreciate the cycle, whether it's, you know, Bronx Tale, Now You Can't Leave, uh, Goodfellas. So, you always, I always kind of appreciated the cycle in the movie, which is uh, that's Connor, right? Like, he's the nut job, but you know what I mean? His trash talk's funny. Uh, this one got weird though, like, and I keep going back on it, but I was just annoyed, but and I'm not a fighter. Right, I'm a novice. I just do my thing in the gym. I like to spar. I like to just get hit in the face a couple times a week and get maybe choked, tapped out a couple times a week just to keep me honest, just to keep the humility, just to keep me always trying to grow and get better as I navigate through this crazy world. But I didn't like the way he uh, he handled that last one. But I keep thinking about it. I don't like the way he handled the L 
I, I feel like trash talk is part of the sport. You know, Muhammad Ali is my hero uh, as far as celebrities goes, and he was great at it. Uh, I think you keep the wives out of it. I think you, you keep religion out of it. You probably keep race out of it. Or definitely keep race out of it, right? Maybe not 10 years ago. I mean, you keep race out of it. Um, and and I, just, it just it hit me wrong, and I was like, I didn't like the way he did it. But then there's this cool part. This guy's sitting there with a broken ankle, and he was literally talking crap. And I don't think I'm that tough. Uh, I'd be crying. But I don't like the way he handled it. But that's not the most important part of the night. And that was the main event. But when I think back, this was the main event. When Tuviasa and Gray Hardy fought, let's be honest. You're not going to find many people. You're not going to find many Gray Hardy fans. I looked through his comments on social media. He's got some fans. I think he's given some interviews where he was, um, you know, He's making some strides to be a better person. He even brought his mother into it. I think he pissed a lot of people off with his last interview talking crap about Derek Lewis. Look, I'm not going to get too deep into this because I don't think there's many UFC fans here. But with Greg Hardy, you got to remember, this guy was a really freaking good football player. You know what I mean? Like, this guy had some legal troubles that you don't come back from but still got on rosters. I don't think he was ever... Uh, guilty or anything like that but you know i mean there's a lot of smoke for him hitting women right and then it just sucks to see him come in there and he's knocking out men too i think he had like five wins or something so he knocks out women and men and that sucks uh that he's able to do both so that guy didn't have a fan in there and it's texas they don't play that crap in texas so i'm just looking i'm like you know everyone in here they got a mother they love, a sister they love, a grandmother, you know, a wife they adore, or they gave up a sack to this motherfucker. And, oh, man, I, when he hit, that, that fight went a minute into the first round. And Tuviasa, he catches, you know, he got caught and he got wobbled. And then he kind of cut the angle and knocks Greg Hardy out. Greg Hardy looks like a freaking you know, a Greek statue, like the guys put together well. This Tuviasa was, he looks like a high school center that didn't get to finish his career because he had to get his knee scoped and the rehab didn't go well. The guy's, you know, knock-kneed, he's jiggly, but that mother sucker could knock you out. He could throw those hands. And Greg Hardy, with his body, he's standing in the middle of the freaking ring. He's pointing him out. He says, stay in the middle. And he, that didn't matter. It didn't matter. You got slept. And the eruption... Just the cheer. I've never seen anything like it. I'm talking about 50 old linemen in consensus, just excited. Just, I saw fries get thrown up in the air at the bar. Beer was spilling. They were pumped. And I was looking around, and I'm like, God, this is awesome. I'm, for starters, I've never seen this much skinny apparel on such big guys. I can't keep up with the fashion. I'm seeing skinny jeans and skinny shirts on 300 pounders. Everyone's excited. Greg Hardy just got knocked out by a guy that looks way more like an old lineman than him. Everyone's pumped. They're wearing skinny jeans. They're 330. They're confident. It's the golden era. It's coming back. It's like Crutes and Allen and Walter Jones. O-line is back. We're confident. And not that those guys would wear tight jeans, but they were confident they were ready for the fight. And everyone was pumped up. Everyone was on the same page. Screw Greg Hardy. You got slept. You hit three women. You knocked five guys out. And then you just got slept by a guy that looks like an old lineman and drinks beer out of a boot. O-line is back, baby. Hand on the Line Podcast, Episode 4. Give me a like. Give me 